Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's up, everyone? I hope you're doing just fine. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Aaron Fifield, and I'm pumped to share this episode with you. And I also have something I'm pretty excited to tell you about. So let's tackle that first. Um, I've just released a full range of Chat with Traders merchandise, and it's available right now at chatwithtraders.com slash shop, S-H-O-P. There's currently five designs. They're available as t-shirts and also sweatshirts in all sorts of colors. And something I'd love to mention is I worked with a brilliant designer on these, uh, someone who has previously designed merch for some really major bands, uh, bands you've probably heard of like Goldfinger, Fallout Boy, Silverstein, so I'm really pleased with how they've turned out. Please stop by the shop, check them out and help to support this free podcast, chatwithtraders.com slash shop, S-H-O-P. Right, now on to my guest of this episode, Mike Agney. So there's probably going to be roughly 100 listeners who are already very familiar with Mike. And that's because he's the trader who I did the live podcast with at the Chat With Traders event in New York City in May. So if you're one of these people, there may be a few moments of deja vu while you're listening. But for everyone else, Mike came into trading approximately 20 years ago. He started at Chicago prop firm Transmarket Group, which of course was founded by legendary trader Ray Kahneman. And that's where Mike spent a total of 12 years of his career. And over the course of his time there, he actually became one of their largest 30-year treasury basis traders, both in terms of volume and performance. And if anyone recalls Trader Monthly magazine, Mike was named one of the top 30 traders under 30 in 2005, which is certainly a noteworthy achievement. Nowadays, Mike is trading his own book and building out a track record with the aim of launching a hedge fund in the coming years. But you'll hear more about all of this the things which have helped Mike get to where he is now and how he trades bonds using a relative value strategy during this episode. 
Though just before we start, I do need to read out a very short disclaimer for compliance reasons as Mike is affiliated with DV Trading. So please note that while Mike is a trader within a group at DV Trading, the views he expresses here are his own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the firm. Mike does not represent DV Trading in any capacity. All right, with that out of the way now, here is my guest, ladies and gents, Mike Agney, coming at you from Chicago. Yeah, anyway, I'm sure we'll get to that in the podcast. Yeah, I listened to your one just real quick on the uh, your bit your BTC VIX guy. I like that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I know you've got um, <laughs> you. I know you've written about Bitcoin a couple of times, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I've been yeah, I've been trying to at least get some exposure to the people out there that don't have it, but are going to hear about it and start to question it because it's you know, ever since it seems like Mount Gox gave it a bad name, and I got burned in that too. But you know, it on any new new innovation you're going to have the bad actors and you just got to weed them out. Uh, okay. So you have traded Bitcoin previously, have you? Or you owned some Yeah, of I've been trading it. Yeah, probably for like two years at least. Oh, I had no idea. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been talking about it since like 2011 and people, you know, everybody I talk to, everyone's a main, main, you know, main like equity bond. They don't like to deviate off the, into the dark web, like Bitcoins. And then I always try to explain it to them. Like, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. You know, blockchain technology, that's going to take over. And, you know, Bitcoin is like the first out of the gate and it's the token basically for blockchain. You know, yeah, there's other, you know, Ethereum and, and Litecoin, all those too, but block, you know, but Bitcoin's the one that's made it out of the gate and has made it through, you know, this whole time up and down. So, mm. You know, I, I, I think it's it's it only got upside, but I think people generally don't understand the technology and that's that's what deters them from wanting to even get involved. So, you know, people are afraid of the unknown, you know. Yeah. I mean, I guess I kind of fall into that category of not fully understanding the technology, like what exactly the blockchain is. Yeah. It's well, you did complex. a good job on that interview. Yeah, no, he was very good in explaining it like in in general terms. So, yeah, I appreciated that one. That was a, that was a good one. Yeah, no, he's really great and I'm sure he'll be on again at some point. You know, it's a it's a constantly evolving marketplace, that's for sure. And yeah, I think no, uh, for things sure. are just getting warmed up. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Now you got Goldman Sachs covering it too, so yeah. that that's interesting in of itself. For sure. Um now, Mike, to you 20 years ago, what actually got you into trading? What piqued your interest? So let's go back a little bit further, uh, back to my childhood. So I was the youngest of eight children. Uh, I had five older brothers. Um, so there were a lot of learning lessons uh, built into that. And one of the advantages was uh, that I was introduced to like real world things at a young age. Some good, some bad. But one of those things were uh, financial futures markets. Um, one of my brothers worked on the CME trading floor as an ARB clerk and a few of his friends did as well. So I was exposed at a pretty early age to, to that arena. My brother would leave these futures magazines laying around the house and so I would look through them and it really sparked my interest. I can't tell you what inside there did or if it was the graphs or the, you know, all that cool stuff, you know, I, I, I can't really say for sure, but, um, they basically told me, you know, when I asked my brothers, like, what was all this stuff was, well, if, if you could guess the, the price of something in the future, then you can make money. You know, obviously it's a bit more complicated than that, but 
to a 12 year old kid, it was enough to uh, pique my interest. It was like uh, magic and I loved magic. So it, it kind of reminded me of that. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of my first real exposure. I think at, at that early, you know, I was probably 12 or 13. And then I can remember looking through like the Sun Times Chicago newspaper here and going to the T-bill section where they used to list them in there. And I think they actually still do now, but, um, and then trying to check back a week later to see if the, I was, guess the price right if it was higher or lower or whatever so i think that's for one reason or another that probably intrigued me early on okay and then how did you actually get involved in trading like when did you actually start to commit some money to this uh well i got my first real shot at trading um in 1996 when i took a phone clerk job at trans market group uh which is a, a prop firm here in chicago um so i spent you know, a lot of my time first learning about the financial interest rate markets, uh, the U.S. Treasuries, you know, to be exact. And that was the area that I would be responsible for. Um, so I was lucky to get the job there. I always wanted to get on the trading floor or get a job down there. Um, and usually you had to start out as a runner or something like that and then work your way up to phone clerk and then possibly broker or trader. But I interviewed for this phone clerk job and they, you know, reluctantly took me on. So that was my first ex- exposure was at Trans Market Group and and um, basically, my job was to answer phone, answer the phone, and enter orders into the futures pits for our uh, treasury cash traders that were sitting up in an office. Right. And how long did you do that for? Uh, I was a phone clerk from, I think I started in March of 96 to the beginning of 98. Um, and I worked for two separate cash traders. Uh, they traded the three year and the five year. That was their main trade. And, um, so it got to the point for those guys where, you know, and I was very fortunate to learn from these, these two individuals, um, Jeff Conrad and Mark St. Amand. They were very good traders. They knew the trade very well. Uh, they were very good at explaining it, you know, all the, you know, the new lingo that went involved with bond arbitrage and, and that they didn't have a problem explaining their stuff to me where, you know, some guys like to hide their, you know, their bread and butter where these guys are basically, you know, willing to, you know, explain it to me. So I got a better grasp and better understanding so I could do my job better. So that I really was, uh, you know, grateful for in, in the fact that they were willing to take time and, and make sure that I understood exactly what we were doing. And, you know, obviously they benefited if I did, did well or got them a better fill. And, and, um, so I did that for like a year and a half. And then it got to the point where, um, I knew their trades so well that I would almost be telling them when to buy or sell because I would watch the floor guys and, you know, not that you can do it now, but back then on the f- trading floor, you had, you know, locals and, um, which were, you know, the traders, the speculators and, and the big bond and brokers. And you knew who everyone was. You knew who everyone covered, you know, whether they covered Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, you know, which guys to watch. So a lot of time, even though the cash market generally led the way, the futures market sometimes would based upon what, whatever was going on. So I, I got to the point where I would lead these guys sometimes, you know, hey, you better hit that cash or, or buy that cash up because, you know, the futures are going to go bid. And, you know, so I made them a lot of extra money. So it got to the point, you know, where I was like, hey, can you guys give me a shot at doing this? I understand this, you know, maybe it's time. And But I felt, you know, I was, wasn't obligated to work for them at that point. Um, I could, I could trade because there was other guys doing this. They were trading and clerking. So that's basically what I wanted to do, but it took some time for them to kind of let me at least do that. Okay. So at this point, you'd gone from being a phone clerk to now swapping over to becoming a trader 
and you ditched the, the phone clerking role? Yeah, you can only do that if you found someone else to take over your job and did it well enough as you did. You know, it's kind of like a pecking order, right? So um, basically, I had a phone clerk during the day and I could trade at night. So I kind of had both jobs at once. So it taught me that I could sleep a lot less than I really needed to. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, I mean, how many hours were you working a day? Um, I would probably work, well, at that time they had night bonds. So you would work from basically seven to two. Um, and then the night bonds would open, um, at five o'clock and then be open, I think till 10 PM. So you could work that session. You could work from 7 AM till 10 PM. Or I think in 98, they came out with the project day system which was a CBOT, the Chicago Board of Trades electronic system. And maybe it came out earlier, but I didn't have access to it. But then that allowed bonds to trade overnight on an electronic system, whereas the 5 to 9 p.m. session was still on the floor. So that was the trading floor. So basically, I would work, you know, from 7 to 10 on some some days if that's what I wanted to do. And that was your kind of progression. You know, Transmarket was very big on on you, you know, cutting your teeth and, you know, working a, as a clerk and then working your way up to a trader if if you picked up the skill set enough to where, you know, they felt that you could do it. You know, that's kind of how Ray Common ran his operation there. And he was, he, he was very... Um, you know, I, I think he took a lot of traders under his wing and he was very good about that. But he was also, you know, he, he was instrumental in, in, I think, probably not only my trading skill set there, but in a lot of guys uh, growing up through the ranks through Transmarket. So, but I knew that was the order that it would have to take. And I knew that I would have to do both of those things. And that was kind of just expected. Now, these two traders who really helped you and kind of molded you into the trader who you were early on, what were some of the big things that you picked up from working so closely with these guys? I mean, you were clerking for them. What were some of the things that, like, is there anything that stands out which they really tried to instill in you? Yeah, yeah. I think this was kind of the balancing act because Mark and Jeff were very disciplined traders. I think, you know, not only on what trades they would actually do, but, you know, I think on the risk side of it, you know, being risk averse and knowing uh, when to take risk, when not to, and not just putting something on just to put it on. Whereas Ray Common was kind of more like a risk taker. So they were the balance between that little bug in my ear, Ray Common, and saying, hey, take the risk and let, let, let's see what you can do. And then these guys were more of the, I don't want to say conservative because it's very hard to be a trader and be conservative, but they were disciplined. And I think one of the main things that they installed in me was discipline of knowing that like you could put this trade on and it might not go your way. So then you're up, it's up to you uh, what you do with it from there. Do you add on? Do you take the loss? Do you, you know, just get out and reconfigure it and see why it's not working out? I think they were very good at, at installing that early on for me. Uh, you know, just that discipline of, of those choices of, and when to take them, you know, timing is everything. So you may have the right trade on, but if you put it on at the wrong time, then you're, you know, then you got to figure out like, you know, where you go from there. And I think they were very good at, at, at that, you know, the timing piece, structuring the trades and why they were doing it. You know, they had ra good rationale. 
I, I understood their trade. So, you know, they would explain to me why they were putting something on, whether it be for like a, you know, a repo play or a calendar role play, something like that, which some guys in the industry, if you're not in the bond, you know, market, you might not understand repo and, and that stuff, but that might be a topic for another day. But it, it's just stuff like that where on, an, on a bond arbitrage, you know, as a bond arbitrage trader, you, you need to know those things and learning from guys that can do it and do it well is, is I think, highly advantageous for a young trader. So you had quite an interesting path into actually becoming a trader. Like you started out as a phone clerk and then you graduated to becoming a trader ultimately. So you kind of had a different path into this than I guess what most traders do, especially nowadays anyway. Sure. Yeah. Were there still challenges for you when you did begin trading full time? Because you said, you know, towards the end there when you were clerking, that you were almost kind of guiding these guys on what trades to make and how to manage certain positions. But when it actually came to it and you were trading for yourself, uh, still at Transmarket, of course, were there any challenges that you still came up against? Yeah, sure. I think the biggest challenge was getting over that hump of trusting that you know how to do it and you can actually do it. I, you know, I'm never going to forget the feeling in your stomach when you put something on and you don't, you know, obviously you don't know it's going to go your way. It looks good. It feels good, but you know, it might not necessarily, you know, go your way. And that's not for everybody. And I think that's what separates successful traders from guys that think that they can just do it is the fact that you can handle certain types of risk and you don't jump the gun or you don't, you know, do something irrational where your mentality kind of, you know, dictates, it could be dictate your profitability or, or your, you know, you may lose money or, you know, because you make a silly decision because you let your mind take over instead of letting your rationality take over. So, um, but I'll never forget that feeling of putting like one of my first, you know, trades on because I was always worried about Ray Common coming over and say, why'd you do that? What, you know, you're, if you're, you know, especially if you were wrong, you know, he loved you when you were right, but he really didn't like if you were wrong. But, but that was part of the, of how he did things. And I think it made, it made you a better trader because not only did he want you to put on risk and take the risk, but he wanted to see how you handled it. This isn't, you know, that I, that's why I don't really believe in paper trading, you know, because it, it it will never be able to supplant the real life experience of actually risking money and capital. And I think Transmarker was very instrumental in teaching that as well. They knew that, that it takes money to make money and they know that not everybody's going to be a winner. But in order to find that winner, you have to take some risk and, and believe in some of these guys that come in. Um, and I don't think your demographic or your background really mattered to any of these guys. It, it mattered whether or not, you know, you could actually do it. Do it. You know, and like I said, it's not for everybody. And I don't think many people like to take risk. I think a lot of people, you know, take the safe route and that's okay. And that might be for some people, you know, but for some others, you know, taking risk, I don't want to say it comes naturally, but it's just easier for some more than others. Absolutely. Yeah. How did you begin to build up your risk tolerance? I presume Ray was certainly a big influence on that, but I mean, can you kind of give us a bit of an idea on how you became, I don't know if more comfortable is the right word, but let's just run with it. <laughs> yeah, no, I know exactly where you're going with it. And the simple answer is, you know, you have to build up capital. 
um, it, you know, he always said, you know, having skin in the game will make you a better trader because, you know, because you have, you have something to lose at that point. Yeah. Everybody can come into a prop group and, and trade their money and risk whatever and walk away and maybe get a job somewhere else if it doesn't work out. But if you go into this thing with that mentality, forget it. You'll never do well because you don't respect the capital. Um, so that's one of the things Ray and Transmark had taught early on as well is that you have to respect the capital and you have to respect the fact that markets can stay irrational a lot longer than you can stay solvent. So that was one of their, you know, key mantras there. And, you know, I, I think it, it worked for me because it gave me the discipline, you know, on the heels of, you know, Mark and Jeff and what they taught me to build up something before you actually take excessive risk or maybe, t you know, move up in size, which that's, you know, you can make more money that way. Not only hold on to something longer, but you can, you can create more alpha by adding on and, and building a bigger position. So, but the only way to do that is to, you know, have successful runs and build capital up so that you can do that. You know, I always felt more comfortable when I was doing well that I could put on more size. And that's really what turned the tide for me in trading was that I got very comfortable putting on risk as I was making more and more money. And that might not be the progression for everybody, but for me, I felt that with the capital behind me and I knew my risk, that I was very comfortable. And I think being comfortable is one of those stepping stones of being a successful trader. In the process of doing so, did you experience any kind of setbacks? Like were there any like big hits that you did take by taking that path? Yeah, uh, yeah. I think one of my... One of my first early lessons going on the project day electronic system. Um, and then for those that aren't familiar with this system, it was, uh, the Chicago board of trades first fully electronic system where you could trade, um, bond futures and uh, in other futures that they had at the CBOT. Um, but when I first got my shot at trading and I was doing, um, what was called five-year basis. So I would, buy and sell five-year cash on the screen or with broker dealers in New York over the phone. And then I would have to do the futures on my electronic system. Well, I did this one trade in the five-year and it happened to be one of my bigger trades that I was doing at the time. And this, you know, this was probably about a year in or so. And I needed to sell 500 five-year futures, which at the time wasn't, it was a lot, but it wasn't that big. I mean, the five-year future was probably, you know, 1500 up. Um, but I hesitated and back then on the project day system, you knew who was trading with you on every site. Every trader had an acronym. Every house had a clearing number. And back overnights, it was me and another guy at Gelber, I think, that would, would battle in the five-year uh, space. And I bought up this cash and needed to sell the five-year futures, and I didn't get them. And his acronym came up, my like adversary from Gelber, and I was so pissed. And I missed a 500 lot, which, you know, I'm a you know, and every, you know, half tick that, that could, that's adds up to some decent money. <laughs> it's 31.25 a tick. So $31 and 25 cents. Um, so that right there, and I'm, you know, you never forget your bad beats or bad losses. And I think I had to pay down another quarter or half tick to get those, but that, you know, when you lose that kind of money as a new trader, you know, it, it's going to sting you and it's going to, you know, you look back and you're like, well, why did that happen? You know, but in trading, if you hesitate, even just that little bit, 
you know, it, it's the difference of turning a winning trade into a loser. And, you know, so that, that point, you know, not that that was a setback, but that was a reality check to how, how quickly something could look so good and turn so bad. So, you know, I, I don't hesitate even to this day now, if I get, you know, I'm, I'm putting it on Im- immediately just because you don't know what's going to happen in that split second. Even now it's even faster. It's into the microseconds or whatever, but so that was an early lesson, you know, for me to realize that you can turn something good into something bad relatively quickly. But um, let me think if there was anything else that happened that I could, um, you know, just things like that. I think the biggest keys early on for me was taking losses. I was very good at taking losses quickly, like getting out of something, not 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 having a string of losses. You know, obviously every trader goes through that, but 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 getting out of something when I wasn't when it wasn't going the way that it, that it was supposed to or as expected. I, I think that made me a good trader as well because I was very cognizant of, of my risk base and my risk capital. And I always looked at something like if it took me more than a day to get back and that, that was my, then, then it's, I'm losing too much money. That's kind of how I looked at things. And I'm still, I'm still the same trader today, even though the market's completely different and, and you know, the dynamics of the markets are completely different. Yeah, of course. Now you were at trends market for, um, what was it? It was 12, was it 12 years in total? I know you were there for quite a while. You left, came back. Yeah. I was there from 96 to 2006 and then 2010 to through 2011. Okay. So for eight of the years you worked at Transmarket, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you became one of their biggest, well, not one of, the biggest trader in terms of volume and in terms of performance. I don't know if I was was their biggest trader, but I was definitely one of their, in the bond 30-year space for sure, one of their larger traders, um, if not largest trader. Uh, at one point in time, I would do probably, I can't even tell you how many hundreds of million in, in a day. Um, even at one clip, I would do 50 to 100 million all at one shot. But the market allowed for that. Not always, because I do remember this one time <laughs> I, I tried to buy a hundred million. I got them and it was offered for, stayed offered for like 200 more million. I knew I was in trouble. So, you know, but once again, I, I knew that I was wrong and I just got out of it. You know, I knew I could make that back. That wasn't a big deal, but every market dynamic changes. So you have to change with the marketplace. But yeah, no, I was definitely probably, probably one of, if not one of their largest 30 year basis traders there. So you- how much capital did you start out with? Like, I'm just trying to get a, a bit of perspective around like where you started out and how you grew your capital to become one of the bigger traders there, like $50, $100 million at a time. Like that's, that's no joke. No. Yeah. I mean, well, at the time the market, you know, it allowed for it though. You got to, you got to realize it's, you can't look at it in today's marketplace. So let's look at it back then. Let's just say it's 2003. I know I can sell or buy a thousand bonds and I might not even move the market, you know, depending on what locals are offered down there. Whereas you can't do that now, but back then you could do it. So to answer your question, I think the biggest thing for me was, um, was having a, not a set amount, but knowing when to say when. So like on a given day, if I made X amount, let's, you know, I don't even want to put a nominal number on it. Um, I was done and it could be 9 a.m., and I would be, you know, I would leave and the other, some of the other traders would be like, well, you're not going to stay the whole day. I go, you know, but no, what's the point? 
you know, what am I going to squeeze out of this for the next five hours while I've already made my money? The only thing I can do now between this and the close is lose money back. You know, so that's kind of how I did it. Now, that's not how everyone was. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of guys that want to stick there and grind things out and watch it. Maybe something happens, maybe something doesn't. But I was very good on hitting my targets. And no matter if it was 745, 945 or whenever, I was done. And I would reevaluate for the next trade or the next time. And I would, you know, generally go home flat just for a clear head and clear conscious. Not always, because there was obviously in the bond there, like I said, there's repo uh, situations or role situations that you'd want to keep positions on. But I think what's what really turned the tide for me was building up a capital base so that you could actually take more risk and understand that you have... You, you have the responsibility now. The success is riding on your shoulders of keeping this capital and growing this capital. You know, nothing more bugged me than like a debit or having some sort of debit, even on a trading day that would annoy me. But you're not going to avoid those, right? You're going to have losing days and, and losing weeks and maybe even losing month, you know. But generally, if you're a good trader, you should over easily overcome those things and figure out how to overcome them and why and how to revamp your trading and, and retool it, you know, as time goes on because the market is dynamic and it's always changing. So the game is always changing. But yeah, just to answer your question, I, I think... I think building the capital up to an a point to a point where you know it allows you the comfortability of extending the risk in your trading. I think that was a big key for me. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how you point out that if you reach a certain amount, you would call it quits for the day and leave it at that. Whereas some people like, you know, those are the days where you really want to push harder and try and make it more. It's funny how like everyone does things a bit differently. Yes, for sure. And there's guys that were very good at that. And, but that was not my mentality. I, I didn't think that way. Now that's not to say that they were wrong or I was right. It just wasn't for me. And I, I think that's another key thing that, that I try to installing people that are, are interested in trading is, is that everything, everyone does everything differently. You know, you can get to from A to B in various ways, but they're going to be unique to you. You know, certainly there's styles you can emulate, but I often point out like, you know, after mentoring a bunch of traders, like I can show two traders the same chart and they'll tell me to buy and one, one, one will tell me to buy, one will tell me to sell, you know, because it's all based upon what our personal you know, background is, I think shapes you. I think what your personal experiences are, they shape you. You know, it's uh, trading's much akin to like a golf swing. It's very proprietary. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Now, I don't want to gloss over the fact that you were at Transmarket and you came up under the guidance of Ray Carmen because he's considered a bit of a legend there in Chicago and probably uh, further widespread than there. But you know, one of the things you said that he really tried to push upon you was 
the willingness to take risk and build up your risk tolerance. Was there anything else which he tried to get across to you? Because, you know, when I think about even some of the, the, the traders who I've had on this podcast, when I, when I see one of their names, I instantly think about a certain something they said, like they had this particular thing. It was something that they were really big on. Obviously, Ray Carmen was very big on taking risk. Was there anything else he was really big on? He, he called risk stuff. <laughs> it was this weird word, like put on some stuff. And no matter what it was, he just wanted to be involved in the marketplace. Um, I think one of the biggest takeaways is, is, you know, he's like a racehorse, right? I think he's still in the game now, to be honest. But I think what I saw early on was his passion for it. And I think that I already kind of, I thought I had a passion for it, but I really, until working at Transmarket, really couldn't grow that. And you really get involved with the dynamics of, of whatever it is you're trading. My focus was obviously the fixed income, 30 year, 10 year, five year sector, but other people obviously trade other things. But I think, I think one of the things that I got from him was his passion. He was so passionate about it and he was so passionate on not only trying to drive you to be passionate about it, but making you figure out whether or not this was for you. He felt like that. I think he knew right away whether or not you were cut out for it, but he didn't want to say that to anybody. I mean, obviously, as, as you get to know him better and you get to, you know, you know, people could take him. Or he was kind of an eccentric. So he, he comes at you from all different angles. And I think a lot of people were very intimidated by him, including me being a young guy there. But as I got to know him, you know, we kind of build this this working relationship and and. And, you know, so I felt I can talk openly with him. You know, I could disagree with him where other guys I think didn't ever, they never wanted to disagree with Ray, you know, basically because, you know, it's Ray, you know, so where I got, I, I kind of took a different route. You know, I just, I listened to a lot of what he had to say and take it all in and then, but formulate my own opinion. You know, I wasn't like a, I don't want to say a greasy wheel, but I definitely would let him know as our, as our relationship grew, whether or not I agree, I agreed, disagreed with him or agreed with him. But I think when you talk about, when you want to say one word for like another, when you hear their name, passion definitely is, is very common. There's no doubt about that. And he's very genuine. He's genuine. Like he wants you to succeed, even though, you know, you, you might not know that he definitely wanted his guys to succeed and be the best at whatever they were doing. That's for sure. That's the sort of person you want leading the team. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. And like I said, he's not, he's, he doesn't, he never, maybe, you know, it's hard to describe the way he, he would come off. You wouldn't know where he was coming from basically, but I knew there was a genuineness behind him in trying to install the passion in, into any one of his traders. And that's what re really resonated with me. Have you seen that photo of uh, Ray online where he's sitting on the side of his bed and he's got six monitors on a Oh rig. Yeah. That's on a big swing arm <laughs> mounted to the wall that swings over and he can just sit in bed and have six monitors <laughs> up in front of him. Well, you know, it was a lot, a lot of the guys, now Ray, he ran not only the, I don't think he ran the cash side per se, but he was more in charge of the yield curve futures guys. He was part of the cash group, obviously Transmarket Group was his was company, but he would basically have interns work for him and have to go to his house and watch his screens and do all that. But I thankfully didn't have to do that. I was one that got, a, it didn't have to do the uh, internship with Ray Common. I was lucky enough to just work under Mark and Jeff and uh, just hear about all the good stories of Ray yelling at you because you didn't press a button or do something else. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I saw that one. That was, that was kind of funny. 
I think that was like in the mid 2000s or something that came out. Yeah, that's incredible. I'll, I'll dig up a link to that photo. I'll stick it in the show notes. So if uh, anyone listening wants to see that and, and really see what passion looks like. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, I know you can see there's probably another photo online of him. He, he got into some biking because he likes to ride his bike into, into, into the work a lot. And I know somebody cut him off one time. He got all bruised up, came in, he was all cut up. And I think somebody snapped a picture of him or something. But yeah, that's, that's the type of passion he has. He's even, he's got all this and he's still biking to work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened after you left Transmarket? Tell us a little bit about your experience at some of the other places you've uh, traded for. So yeah, then I tried to go into the fixed income arbitrage space as a space as a CTA, which is a commodity trading advisor. So I went off on my own in 07. Um, and I took me about a, two years to get the CTA designation, um, which I did. I passed all the FINRA and, and all the CFTC stuff to do that. Um, but just had a hell of a time raising capital. You know, obviously it was a 2008 crisis back then and 2009 and everybody was on edge about where to put money and where to put capital. So I spent a ton of my money on trying to build that and actually ended up being costing me a lot more money than I thought. So then I'm like, you know, I got to continue to trade and try to manage a business. I can't do both really. So that's when I gave that up and went back to Transmarket Group. Um, and then I only stayed there for another a uh, year and a half because they they decided to change routes from the uh, discretionary um, uh, trader to the more algorithmic high frequency side, and I didn't wasn't really I didn't really want to be a part of that. I never felt that 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 high frequency trade was my bread and butter. Mine was more of a relative value uh, historical context trading. And which is somewhat systematic, you know, but still I like the discretionary aspect of it. So, um, I had to part ways from there, which was, you know, it wasn't a big deal. That was fine. And then I took a job with, which was a, a based in New York. And I will, my job was to hire five or six traders and get them involved into fixed income arbitrage, which, which was the uh, system that I had. So I spent two years building that out. Things, things went relatively well, except we couldn't raise the capital once again from their external hedge funds to uh, back the trade even bigger because it got to the point where you can either increase our trade and spend the money on technology or kind of just keep it the way it is. But that's not, I can, I, I don't need a company to back me for that kind of trading. You know, it wasn't what, I was, let's just say, promised to be as opposed to, you know, where I, where I thought it could be if we spent the money and did it. But, you know, it never got to that point. So. Okay. So what's your situation today? Oh, so now um, I still have Agni Asset, which I, I trade um, my relative value basis through. Um, and I'm building basically a four-year track record to open my own hedge fund. It's still viable, still makes money, still does everything that I think it can do. And I'm right now in the process of just banging away at the monthly track record to, you know, hopefully attain enough capital to start a hedge fund, which, you know, probably takes 25 to $50 million to do in today's market. So why the four year track record? Is that a, just a, a good number? Everybody I've talked to, they like the trading, they like the track record. But it's, it's a matter of, you know, how viable is it through different trading environments? So like, how did you do through, you know, not that they'll use 2008 as an example, cause that's, you know, eight years ago, but you know, some guys might want that, but it seems to me like the bigger capital wants at least three to four 
if not five years worth of, of actual real trading track record. At least that's from, from what I've been, we've been, you know, accustomed to seeing, you know, now I don't have the connections at Goldman Sachs or those guys to say where I've come from, you know, Yale or Harvard, I can just, you know, call a couple connections. I don't have that. So it's more of like, you know, work your way in, uh, show that it's viable in actuality, you know, give them your statements, that kind of stuff. And then they'll listen to you. Okay. And are you thinking more along the lines of a hedge fund structure or more of a CTA structure? Yeah, no, I can't go the CTA route because of the, the U S treasury cash. It seems too tough to having things if they're not underneath one roof, let's say here in the U S you can't trade U S treasury cash and clear futures under the same roof. Um, and then I, it, to take it to investors, you know, it, it becomes very difficult for somebody to raise money for that because now you got to house money in both whoever's clearing your cash, whatever um, investment bank is clearing your cash, and then you got to house capital in your futures clearing merchant. So you're putting up two fronts of margin capital for one actual trade. And with all the new Frank Dodd rules, they, they put everybody in the same category, whether you're trying to make a hundred grand a year or a billion dollars a year, you're the same trader. So in effect, you need like, I think the lowest amount you can have to offer this as like an investment is like 40, 45 million or something. So there's rules and regulations that are, that are, uh, you know, a little bit of a deterrent and just, just the niche side of it that it is. Now, if it was just futures and options I was doing, I could do that CTA all day long, but you know, that's not my trade. So I can't do it that way. I have to, you know, abide by the rules and regs and, and market it, it you know, or, or not even market it. I don't want to use that word. I, it's until you get to that point where you have that, that minimum set of capital, I feel that it's not going to be viable. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, what is it about going the hedge fund route, which is appealing to you? Uh, I just know that this trade is highly scalable. I know a lot of people don't do it and I know that the track record is viable. I've done it. I think there's a lot of, you know, false profits out there in this money management world that claim that they can do certain things and, you know, that they probably can't. So a lot of guys get into this business, let's say hedge fund or money management, they're in it for the fees. You know, you raise a hundred million. Yeah. Two and 20, you can take 2 million home. I'm not in it for that. I'm in it because I know what I do is, is viable and it, there's still a, a niche market for it. And, you know, I, I think I could bring that to a lot of people that don't understand it. So uh, I view money or, capital, you know, in terms of fee structure is a byproduct of the success I would have in terms of delivering, you know, alpha generation in a non-correlated way too. That's the thing about my trade. I'll make money whether or not the equity market goes up or down, or if the bond market goes up or down, I don't really care what direction it goes in, you know, and I think that's advantageous to a lot of risk averse players. Yeah. Well, I'm really keen to hear a bit more about your strategy, but I think before we do, a good primer to that might be just to talk about uh, the treasury bond market in general, um, and then we can maybe focus in a little more on your strategy. Sure. You're obviously the right person to ask about this, uh, considering you've been trading it for however long now. It's not something we've really covered on the podcast before, in great depth at least. So I guess a few of these questions might be somewhat basic or sort of beginner uh, questions, but I think it might be really helpful uh, for many people listening 
you know, I'm going to assume that a lot of listeners don't know much about this market. Um, I'm also going to put myself in with that bunch. I mean, I know next (laughs) to nothing. So, I mean, let me just ask you, why do you trade the treasury bond market? Is it just what you've always done or is there a specific reason for why you like this type of market? Um, well, you know, I think, yeah, that's a big part of it. I mean, that's at at Transmarket, that's what we were known for. So realistically, most of my exposure was to this market. So not only the future side, but the cash side, which a very few people actually traded outside of, you know, investment banks or banking sector players, but, um, our proprietary group traded. And I've always felt that that was, you know, it's kind of a cool club to get into. So the bond market, it's very big. It's very, you know, it's, it's larger than the equity market. You know, you've got varying degrees of, of interest rate risk, uh, duration risk. When I, you know, when I speak of duration, we could just, let's just say, uh, one year T bills to 30 year bonds. You know, you've got a long time frame in between there. And with those time frames, there's certain variants of, you know, interest rate and yield curve risk. So I thought the dynamics of it were very, very interesting. So that's always been one of the reasons that, that drew me to it. You know, there was a lot of variables to it, but that I don't want to say that, that, that this market, I do trade other things, you know, the fixed income market is my primary market, but I do trade index, you know, S and P index and that, and and sometimes the Euro currency and those, but you know, the fixed income derivatives and the futures options and cash is my main market primarily, you know, to answer your question is because it probably, that's what trans markets big focus was. Okay. And these days, what are you trading? Are you trading the, is it the five and 10 year? Yeah, the 30 year. I'll trade, I, I mainly trade the 30 year and the 10 year cash, um, against the futures. So that's what, when we talk about an arbitrage, it's, it's taking one instrument and let's say you're buying one instrument and you're selling another instrument and you're just hoping for a variance in between the spread. Um, it could cheapen or, you know, get more expensive and whether, you know, and you'll profit whether or not you're long or short that side of the spread. But I've always, and and I always tell people like, you know, when they talk about trading, oh, you're, you know, you're, you you know, you're a good trader. You can do this or do that. I'm like, no, that's not true. Like, cause I'm not a very good outright trader. Like I can't buy or sell bonds outright and do well. I was, I don't think I've ever good at that. If I bought it, I guarantee it goes down. (laughs) But if I do my spreads, I'm much more comfortable. So maybe that's the, the thing linking it all together is the comfortability because people will generally ask my opinion on rates and that kind of stuff. And I'll have my opinion, you know, I'm, I'm very, you know, I, I don't agree with what the federal reserve and the central banks are doing. And I don't agree with QE and I don't agree with artificial props of, uh, financial markets, but that's the market we have. So it has changed my market somewhat because the central banks are kind of like the main buyers and everything. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't, you know, the niche is still there. And I still think a lot of people don't understand it and don't do it. Especially nowadays, you get a lot of these, uh, engineered physics programming types. They don't understand the, the, the dynamics. I don't think of the players involved in this market. They're just looking at two binary numbers and trying to see, you know, if it, it's a buy or sell based upon the parameters. But, um, I could be totally wrong about that, but I, I would highly doubt they understand the dynamics of the basis. Uh, so a couple things based on that. Um, first one, when you talk about the cash and the futures markets, I mean, can you just ex- explain how they differ? Like what's the cash market for and what's the futures market for and why is there two markets there? 
Okay, so the cash market is, when I talk about the cash market, I'm usually trading what's called the on the run, which is the most recently auctioned 10 year or 30 year, let's say. So they have like quarterly auction, refunding auctions, uh, May, was it February, May, uh, August and November. And so when I talk about the cash market, that's usually the instrument I'm buying or selling. Now you'll hear other guys that do off the runs or old issues, and those are just old issues that were on the run, but their time passed and now they're off the run. Um, and then you talk about the futures market. Um, the futures market's the derivative off of that because it trades on, you know, I don't want to get too far into the dynamics of the basis because then you'll start talking about what's called the cheapest to deliver and conversion factors. And that's what, what basically drives the basis pricing. When you're buying and selling the cash instruments and buying or selling the futures, that's the basis. And what drives that are the dynamics of the cheapest to deliver. Uh, if there's a, an ability for that cheapest to deliver issue to switch, um, sometimes the calendar roll could have an, uh, you know, an effect on it, um, even on the future side. So there's a lot of dynamics that go into that, that I don't want to complicate your listeners with. Um, but there's a lot of factors that, that could, you know, that make the basis very interesting. And that's what I've always liked about it because it's, it's, you know, every day is different. And who are the major participants in bond markets? Uh, well, I think, you know, obviously today the central banks, I mean, they own, I think, close to 40% of the entire float of all of them out there, but they're not in, in and out of the market every day. So you'll have, you know, obviously the big high frequency guys that, you know, in there that, you know, they might be doing some balance sheet stuff and keeping stuff on, but they might just go flat at the end of the day. So there's those type of players. There's uh, obviously long-term insurers trying to match liabilities that are always in there, buying and selling based off of, you know, their their liability match and, and interest rate structure that, that they think is going to happen over the next course of whatever time duration they're trying to match. I think in today's market, it's primarily driven by high frequency groups um, that don't take balance sheet risks that go flat at the end of each day. I, you know, that, that, that drives the market and the pricing. And due to that and due to, you know, some places being able to warehouse trades, that means they can net a buy and sell and in, uh, inside their own firm. I think that p- presents a little bit of a, a mismatch in the, in the outright market that we see currently that the one that you, you know, is displayed on the screens because you don't, you don't see the entire, you don't see the entire, you know, market being put out for sale or for bid. So I trade on secondary markets, what are called that are, you know, done through, let's say broker tech or NASDAQ OMX or trade web or Bloomberg. You can, those are the, the guys that provide the pricing for the U S treasury market. And then I'll do the futures through other, other separate systems, which I don't know if I should mention their names or not, but I mean, if someone's interested, I guess they can reach out to you. Yeah. Well, CQG will allow you to, you know, as, as a, as a trader for a, a third party system will allow you to have access to that market. CQG does it. Trading technologies, TT does it. I think some of the other ones do too. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Because that's, that's something I was going to ask you actually. I mean, is for someone who's new, let's say someone's fairly new to trade and they're interested in potentially getting involved in the bond market, what type of, what, what barriers to entry are there? Uh, well, if you trade the cash, obviously the first one is capital with their new rules and regs. So like you're going to have to either get a, a prop, you know, proprietary job at some firm that actually offers it or get a partnership in enough capital and do it through that, that way. 
um, through another firm that has the balance sheet that can trade the U.S. cash. Um, but if you're just talking about like future, like fixed income futures and options, it's fairly easy to get involved in that on the, uh, like I said, either, either through any, any, any FCM and whatever third party vendor system you want. I think anybody offers that. I mean, not only just the CQG or TT that I mentioned, but I think most of them offer access to it, to CBOT products. It's the cash market. That's the real issue. Um, it's, it, it's, I don't even know how you would get involved in that as a, as a beginner now, to be honest. I don't even want to answer that clearly. <laughs> Other than going to get a job at a prop group that already trades basis, something like that. Okay. Okay. Well, let's leave that for now. Um, what about like, what about ETFs? Because there's a lot of ETFs which are kind of spinoffs of different bond markets. Yeah. Yeah. Like the TLT and the IEF, those guys. Yeah. Yeah. So you think that- you know, a fairly reasonable. Oh, in terms of participants, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I'm sorry I didn't mention that. I'm glad you brought that up. No, for sure, they're definitely a, a decent player in there now because of the size of them. But once again, I don't know if they're actively involved in there. You know, they're probably just matching their NAV at the end of the day and and adding or subtracting whatever their their mix is at that point. I don't think they're actively, you know. Um, buying or selling the issues throughout the day. Um, and once again, you might get an ETF expert on here that manages those. You might disagree, but, uh, and maybe they do, maybe, you know, maybe they are, but I, I don't, you know, the size of the market that trades on the secondary screen compared to what it was back in 04 or 05 or 06 is nothing. It's minimal, you know, and that's real. That's the real dynamic change of what, how, you know, how our market or my market has changed is, is what you actually see on the screen compared to what, what you used to see. Back when I used to do 50 to 100 million in the tenure, you'd, you'd be able to get those off uh, on the screen. Now you can't really, you could probably get them, but you might move the market off of doing that. But as soon as the algos sniff out, you want to buy or sell 500 tenures, they're going to front run you. So why has that changed so much? Just because of the... Because there's no more, there isn't, the integrity of the bid and offer is different. Once high frequency came involved in these markets, they could both simultaneously be the bid and the offer at the same time. Whereas back in the pit, you couldn't do that. If you were five bid and somebody said sold, or however many he wanted, you better take. So whereas now, if I see five bid on a screen and let's say there's 500 there and I go to sell 500, I might get a hundred of those. Because if I'm using, if I don't have my own black box model, uh, proprietary software, and I'm using like a, a second party or third party vendor, it, they're going to see my order before I, before my order gets filled. Now, some people will say that that's illegal or that, that no, it's just a time delay. I'm delayed. If you're on a third party system, you're delayed, whether it's six milliseconds, seven milliseconds, whatever that delay is, it's not actually what's on your screen. So... That was one of the issues I kind of had when I was at this place was when we were doing bigger size, I would never get the size I would need and somebody would always get them before me somehow. And that's when I knew right then and there, and this was like 2011, that's when I knew that the, either, the only way to increase size is to, to increase your speed as well simultaneously, So, which will take you know, technology and infrastructure, obviously. But a lot of my stuff now, I, I, so that's what turned me away from trying to you know, do things a certain way. Whereas now, you know, I'm doing more, you know, based on historical, based on relative value. And I'm putting the position on, I don't care if I buy the offer necessarily because I'm viewing my trade setup as correct. 
And I'm hoping that if I buy the offer, it becomes the bid and somebody else will buy the next offer because of my analysis. So it kind of makes my trading skill set a little bit deeper and more involved. And, you know, whereas execution is not my precursor to success, it's, it's based upon how my system works and where, where it tells me there's value and where it tells me something's cheaper or, or expensive, you know, in that, in that respect. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. Just before we get into a little bit about your strategy, um, just one more newbie question around uh, trading the bond market. Is it preferable from a trader's standpoint, is it preferable for traders new to bonds to maybe choose either the the five-year over the 10-year over the 30-year? Like, are there any big characteristic differences between the different treasury bonds? Yeah, there's more, the, there's more risk as you go further out the, the curve. So obviously there's more risk to a 30 year than there is to a five year. Not only because it's a longer holding period in the, in the bond itself, but the price, price movement is larger. So the five year trades in a quarter tick increment, the 10 year trades in a half tick increment, and the 30 year trades in a full tick increment. So if you buy and sell one lot, in the bond and you lose a tick, it's, you know, 3125. Whereas if you go to the 10 year, it's half that it's 1562.50. And if you go to the five year, it's down to a quarter tick. So if you're just starting out in the bond market, I would definitely start out more in the five year sector, probably futures wise, um, cause it's quarter tick and it's a little safer. But most of the time, if you're starting out, you're probably a spreader of some sort. So you might want to spread like a five year against a 10 year or even a five year against a two year, you know, something to, to you understand the dynamics of what moves these markets. Um, and right now it's kind of sketchy because you've got a central bank that's raising rates, which should affect the short end and should flatten that out. But what we've had just nothing but steepening over the last month. And even though they're raising rates, because, uh, you know, obviously everyone's calling the Fed's bluff saying you can only raise so much, you're going to have to eventually roll back down. And that's why the yields on 10 years are still below 2.3%. So you got those dynamics, which makes it very difficult uh, for if somebody new coming out. There's a lot coming at you. It's not just like buying like Google and waiting for an earnings to come out, and which I didn't think went too well for them today. But uh, you know, it, there's a lot to the bond market that you're going to have to figure out if you're coming into it. Not only, you know, you got to figure out, you know, what, what drives the, what components of fixed pricing and floating pricing and bond duration and all that. There's a ton into it. So I don't want to complicate it though. You know, I don't want to dis- dissuade somebody. Let's just say, I think you should probably read up a little bit about the bond market before you get involved into it. I think. But I would definitely start out in the shorter sector, shorter end sector. Well, are there any resources or any any material online maybe which you think's particularly good? The CME group does a great job of providing free resources for any one of their markets. Um, I think you could start out there for sure. I mean, there's so many, you know, there might, you know, I think there's actually a few interactive ones on there too. You know, that go into delve, you know, delve into the pricing mechanisms of it and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I think the CME group does a great job of that for sure. There's more than enough there for anyone to really want to dig into and, you know, learn more about it. You know, because bonds are tough to a little bit understand, you know, because they have a, a yield component to it. And if bonds are going up, yields are going down. So sometimes people have a hard time figuring out, well, yields are falling that, you know, that's good, you know, if you're long, you know, but 
because it's counterintuitive, something falling is good, you know? <laughs> so it's a strange, it's strange if you don't have any exposure to it to once you're, you know, getting into it, you're going to, there's a few dynamics, things that you, you know, got to kind of figure out first. Okay. Well, I mean, that sounds like a good starting point anyway, for anyone who's interested. So, Mike, let's focus a little more on your strategy. So, you've described your strategy as a relative value strategy. Can you just break that down in in simple terms? What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. Here, um, let me just think. <laughs> Try to explain it simple. So, yeah, like relative value. So, um, so I've got like historical pricing, you know, on most of the bonds that I've traded for probably the last, I don't know. 10 years. So through that, you build models on relationships um, on each one of the, you know, different sectors. So let's just use five year, 10 year, 30 year for that, for that, you know, this scenario. So now whether it's an interest rate hiking environment or, you know, obviously we're, we're in sort of a hike, but we're not uh, kind of thing. So you try to figure out how they reacted to a certain stimulus before and whether or not they're going to react the same way. And then what time frame are they going to react the same way? You know, so when I talk of relative value, it's, it's how is one performed relative to the other in, in a similar environment. Now it's not, you know, obviously it's kind of like a, you know, it sets the parameters for how I trade and it'll tell me whether or not something's rich or cheap, but that doesn't mean I always have to, this is the thing that's a little bit more dynamic than like just having a straight up black box model, I think, is that I will sometimes, you know, not always discretionary, you know, make a call whether or not I believe it or not. Sometimes it hurts me, sometimes it saves me, but I like to generally still have that control of whether or not I believe that based on historicals, based on this relationship that, yes, this thing's telling me it's cheap, but I think it can get cheaper based upon what players are involved now, based upon how it's been going over the last day or two, you know, how I feel, you know, those are those dynamics that aren't necessarily built into it, but are something that I take the discretion of utilizing. So if that kind of makes sense, where I'm I'm using historical relationships against the current backdrop of trying to figure out whether or not one bond is relatively cheap or expensive to another. Okay, so if you had to say how it is that you generate alpha, I mean, mm-hmm. how would you answer that? I would say that my my trading generally describes a certain trade setup as either rich or cheap. And if it, it I'll take either side of that in hopes that over the course of, it could be hours or days or for that, and let's just use that for example, hours or days, and throughout that course, either the trade's going to go my way based upon this, or the dynamics are going to change, and my system's going to say, "Well, now something that was cheap is now fairly valued, you know, and it might be time to exit it." So then I'll exit, you know, something like that. But it's not always—I'm not looking to take a half tick or a tick. It might, you know, it might not say that it's overvalued for two or three ticks. So it'll allow me to hold something as well, you know, um, as opposed to just taking the the half tick or tick out of it and and going flat, let's just say. It allows me to have a general idea of richness or cheapness. And that allows me the flexibility to stay in a trade or, you know, decide to take it off and and see if it's the the signal still there. Right. So, I guess this question may seem fairly simple on the surface, but it might also be quite a complex question in some ways. How do you determine what's cheap and what's overpriced? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, there's obviously the market will decide that, right? I'm not deciding that. My system's not necessarily deciding that. The market's deciding that. So I have the parameters set up, and, and like I said, it'll 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 say whether or not today it's or at this time based upon these parameters it's rich or cheap now i can like i said the part of it of my stuff is discretionary is whether or not i listen to it or not and whether or not i feel like that this is correct you know a lot of times it'll say like okay this is cheap but you know i'll look at it and i'll look at you know maybe how it's been trading over the last hour or two and be like well i think these guys are getting long still and it could get cheaper based upon uh, you know the days moving on and these guys might be stuck so i'm gonna wait and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it, the cheap turns into one tick strong and then I miss it. But, you know, I'm willing to take that in an overall sense of on a risk side and say, all right, let's just say I'll put one unit on here. And if it, these guys do have to bail, then I'm going to put another unit on, you know, something like that. Um, but the, I don't have a set exact parameter for that to say like, well, you should do, you know, some people's systems are set up differently. They'll put one unit on here, one unit here or whatever, however they set it up. Whereas mine, I try to keep a little bit more flexibility on it and use a little bit more discretion of, of how I feel the market's trading at any given point. I think that's what separates from what I do from a lot of the black box models that are always kind of, I don't want to say static, but just do things on a repetitious manner. I guess maybe a different way of asking the question, maybe to get at a different part of it. What are the relationships you're looking at to help you determine relative value? Oh, well, I mean, like I said, a lot of it's just based upon, you know, historical, um, you know, occurrence and how one issue is reacted to another. Um, generally speaking, I guess a good way to describe it is if the Fed's in an interest rate hiking environment, the yield curve, curve should should roll down, roll over, or flatten because obviously they're raising short rates, right? They can control the short rate. So when I mean short rates, I mean like, you know, zero to two years, let's just say. So if that's the rate they're raising, well, then obviously that, that rate has to rise. So normally they'll sell the front end, which is, you know, like I said, the zero to two year sector and they'll, you know, they're buying the longer end. So, but that, that doesn't mean that that will always happen. You know, obviously, if, if if we're in this environment, my system will obviously say the two years are expensive and, you know, relative to 30 year. But, to you know, you got to look at fr- from a contextual point of view at that given moment, because in this environment that we're in today, people... I think are now realizing that interest rate hikes are, are easing. They're not a hiking of rates the way they used to be because now we pay interest on excess reserves. So every time the Fed hikes rates, they're not, they're not, they're not raising, you know, conditions of borrowing. They're actually lessening the condition because they're paying the banks, you know, $30 billion a year in free money. So the higher the interest rate goes, the more money the banks get. That's an easing of conditions. That's not a, that's not an, you know, making, you know, conditions harder. So that's why I think everyone's off guard here. And I think that's why everyone, you know, I think in the last month they bought the yield curve because they realized that hiking rates is no longer what it used to mean. The conditions aren't tightening. They're actually giving the banking system more money. So when you talk about my thing, yeah, obviously it'll say in a hiking rate environment that the, just on a general sense, now Aaron, I'm being very generalistic. (laughs) Um, You know, you should own 30 years over two years, but you know, I know that hiking, what doesn't mean what it used to mean. So I generally would say that, 
you know, we should steepen, not flatten. And you can make money off of that because obviously every big player out there looks at that. If you look at your insurer, you know, big insurers that have their PhD economists out there saying, oh, look at the curve's going to flatten out and rates are going to be past three or 4%. I've been hearing that for 10 years now. You know, it's not going to happen. This market, this debt can only go higher and the interest rates can only move lower because of the mathematics behind what they've created. So they have to jawbone and talk a big game when in reality, yeah, I know they can't raise rates the way they used to. Well, we're talking about some pretty big picture stuff here. I'm just curious, what's the average duration of your trades? Mm, you mean now, okay, so in my world, duration, <laughs> it could mean, you know, am I trading a 30-year bond or a five-year or do you mean how long do I hold it? Exactly. How long are you holding for? One day, one day generally. Okay. One day. So how do these big picture... Uh, like, like you're very interested and you, you place a lot of emphasis on understanding the fundamentals of this market as well and economic yeah. influences. How does that affect your, your short-term trading? Because, you know, one day to the next can not necessarily be in line with- uh, For sure. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, sometimes it, it jades my, my, my long-term view sometimes jades my short-term approach. And that's where I got to balance it because I generally want to know where things are going in the long run, but it, it might not be the case in the short run. So how do I structure the trade accordingly? You know, that's why when I say interest rates are, in my opinion, should move lower, but they may pop because you've got a lot of big players out there with a lot of smarter guys than me out there saying that interest rates are going to rise and they're going to put their money on that. So I can't fight that, you know, if PIMCO or Double Line or those guys are in the market saying rates are going, the rates are going to move up. But for what I do, I'm not necessarily, you know, my holding period is so short that I'm mindful of the long-term you know, fundamental reason and where I believe things are going to be. But I know in the short term, the market can trade anywhere. It's one of those things that like back in the trans market days, I, I, I know, that, you know, just because I have this belief doesn't mean the market can't go there. And that's why I kind of take over my relative value because it'll tell me one thing, but I might not believe in it, you know? So, and, but I have to really convince myself of why I don't believe something is, is rich or cheap. But you're right. It it, uh, it it I think it keeps me fo- knowing where, or at least having a opinion, allows me the flexibility of at least keeping a general idea of whether or not I want to be long or short. And like I think from what you're trying to say is like how you know it, does that dissuade me on a short term level of of putting something on? And the answer is yes, it probably does. And a lot of times it, it does save me, but you know some of the times it does hurt me from actually putting on a trade that. You know, even though I think yields are falling, yields might pop. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be long at long yield or shorted in price, let's just say, because I still believe bond prices are going higher, so I won't sell it. So a lot of times, yeah, it does affect, you know, whether or not I put a trade on or not. But more too often than not, I'm putting something on. And, you know, that's the good thing about spreads is, you know, you're just hoping the variance in one or the other moves faster than the other. You know, you can always get out and reevaluate. And that's a good thing, too, that I don't get married to this stuff. You know, I can always get out and get back in. I've got no problem of, like, let's just say selling threes and then buying buying threes back, just as an example. Well, Mike, the one last thing I'd like to ask you about, and it's uh, not necessarily directly related to your strategy, uh, but just in general. I know there's a certain line that you 
I don't know if you live by it, but it's something that you you quote from time to time and you say, if you take care of the short term, the long term will take care of itself. Do you mind just expanding on why you use this as a mantra? Um, I, yeah, I think once again, that goes to my trans market days of, of growing up and having to generate capital before, before you took on a lot of risk. It always seemed like, and, and, you know, also going back to where if I, I made my net goal for the day and it was 745 in the morning, um, you know, I was done because I felt like on a mental level in this, in this game, in this arena, if you're not at your best, if you're not at your clearest, cleanest mental state, I think you're putting yourself at a huge disadvantage. So I always felt I traded better that if I always took care of the short term, which was like, oh, I'm done for the day, then I know tomorrow I'm going to start out fresh. I'm not going to have an opinion necessarily. And I'll have a clear conscience of what I need to do. And, you know, obviously the goal of a trader is to make money. You know, I don't care what market you're trading, what are you trading or whatever you're investing in. Nobody likes to take losses. And I think the hardest thing to do is to take a loss. And I think it's much easier to do on a clear conscience than it is, you know, otherwise. And, you know, I think that's just one of those things that I've learned from the beginning and that's always stayed with me. And so I figured, you know, that mantra of always taking care of the short term. Yeah, it's conservative, but in the world of trading, sometimes conservative kind of buys you longevity and it allows you the dynamics of, you know, altering your trading state through as the market changes because, you know, today's market is not the market as it was 10 years ago. And that's hard for a lot of people to adjust to. You know, I've mentored a lot of traders and I've seen a lot of, you know, different backgrounds, different, you know, guys come from money, guys that don't come from money, guys that, you know, had a great education, guys that didn't. And I don't really think much of that matters. I, I think it's very, I, I think the trading skill is innate and it, it's very proprietary to the nature of the person. And I think understanding yourself is a, is one of the biggest facets of success, I think, in this arena. Well, on that note, let's uh, wrap things up here. So, uh, Neil, who introduced us and who was also on, I think it was episode 127, who spoke about starting a CTA, a commodity trading advisor, um, how you would go about that. Uh, I presume we're allowed to speak about this, but you ghostwrite their newsletter. Yes. Now, uh, Neil asked, uh, what'd she do? She, she set up a page. So that if anyone wants to get that newsletter, which you, Mike, uh, write, um, you can do so. So I'll set up that link. If you go chatwithtraders.com slash Mike, M-I-K-E, that'll redirect you to uh, a page where you can actually subscribe to um, a free newsletter that goes out. I think it's once a week uh, where Mike, well, you tell them what's in the newsletter, Mike. Yeah, well, we try to speak about, you know, obviously I cover mostly bond and equity stuff, uh, futures, uh, cash options types of, of trading. And, but I also like to cover, you know, whatever happens on a global macro environment. You know, the goal of it is to educate not only CTG's clients, but anybody that reads the newsletter on other things that are out there in the alternative investing space. So, you know, it's really more of an educational tool as much as it is like an informative tool on trading, let's just say. But it, our, our, my idea is to bring what the research that I do in my own trading 
and, you know, out to anybody that's willing to read it, you know, and I try not to get too highly specialized. I try not to be inundate people with anything that, that they probably couldn't understand, even if they're coming outside of the financial arena. Um, so my goal is to actually educate people on understanding the current marketplace, why things move, how it might affect you and your investing and understand that there's a bigger picture in what's going on here and, you know, try to, you know, provide some clarity in, in understanding these markets. As, you know, especially nowadays, Aaron, with everyone calling these things a bubble and this is a bubble and that, you know, equities are a bubble, bonds are in a bubble and Bitcoin's in a bubble. I go, you know, it's crazy to say these things because we really don't know how long things can last. And we don't, unless we get underneath the hood and see what's driving the pricing of stuff, you know, then we can understand it. And if we, we kind of, you know, collaborate and send these ideas out there and people are free to comment or to send in something, you know, if they want something to, you know, be looked at, then I'd be willing to write about it for sure. Um, because I'm in, I'm all in for the collaborative effect of, of, you know, spreading knowledge to people, not only in the trading environment, but investing in global economics as well. I mean, I certainly encourage anyone who's interested in that type of thing to join up. And it's free. Yeah, it's free <laughs> once a week. Quality research. No, it's really good, man. I've I've read several editions of it. Oh, thank you. You're also on Twitter, and I think you're also. Do you have a website of your own or a blog of your own which you'd like to mention? I do. You know, put the stuff I ghostwrite for Capital Trading Group on there a couple of weeks after I put it on my own blog, which is econemotions.com. So you can find it on there as well if you know you don't want to sign up for it. I usually put it up there later on, um, a couple of weeks after. So I'm doing that, and uh, that's the blog. And then I'm I'm on Twitter as well. Yeah, basis arb at magni thirteen thirteen. That's not your handle though, is it? It's just m agni thirteen thirteen. Is it? Is that how you? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's oh, so you'll have to edit that out, Aaron. You'll, so, what does it come up as? I don't even know, actually. So, your name is Basis Arb, but your actual yeah. handle where people can find you is at, oh, it's at Magni thirteen thirteen. Yeah. So N A G N E one three one three. Okay, so maybe you could send that. So you could, you could you could say that part then. Yeah, yeah, just did. There we go. So um, yeah, and just a reminder: if you want to get the uh, free research, chatwithtraders.com slash Mike. That'll redirect you to a Capital Trading Group uh, page where you can get the the free newsletter. So uh, yeah, let's close it out here, Mike. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Absolute pleasure to speak with you again. I appreciate it, man. All right, thanks so much, Aaron. Appreciate it. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.